We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is taken from the book of Esther. We're going to read the whole of Esther, chapter 5. Again, I'm reading from the ESV, and it can be found on page 413, 413 of the Church Bibles. And it says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting in his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I found favour in the sight of the king, And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. (coughs) Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendour of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honoured him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then be joyful. Sorry, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Well, do keep that chapter open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. Just to say, as we begin, there's an outline of the sermon in the handout you've given as you came in. So do make use of that. It helps you to follow the logic of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Feel free to make any notes. And also to say at the end of the talk, uh, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions about what's been said or make any comments. So I mention that now so you can bear that in mind as we go through. But let's um, 
Before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign. And we pray, please, now as we consider your word, help us to vindicate who you are in our response to it. That we'll be those who would listen, who would trust, and who would obey. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the features of the book of Esther is that God is absent from the book by name. There's no record of him speaking. His name is not mentioned. He's never referred to. And it could lead us to think that this book has nothing to tell us about God. It's just rather a story from this particular period of ancient history. Now, Esther chapter 5 is an interesting chapter because the story doesn't advance a whole lot. It rather prepares us for what's to come. Esther begins to make her appeal. And if you remember, or you're uh, new here, an edict has been made previously that all the Jews are to be destroyed. Okay, and so Esther has agreed to make an appeal to the king. And she begins that here. But she doesn't actually make the appeal in this chapter, and so we don't yet know the outcome. At the same time, Haman continues to be angry at Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to him and pay him homage. Yet this chapter provides an opportunity to consider how the account has been written, how the author has chosen to narrate these particular events. Because as with any account of events, there are different ways to tell it. And one of the ways that the author uses here is that of dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is the idea that the readers know more than the characters. It's the idea that the the true meaning of the uh, situation is understood by those who are reading it, but not by the characters in the story itself. Now, a powerful example of this would be Mark's account of the cross. Do you remember when Jesus is about to be crucified? The soldiers mock Jesus. They bow down and pay him homage. They stick a crown on his head and put a purple robe robe on him. I mean, the soldiers are mocking him when they do those things. They mean the exact opposite of what they say. It's just barracks room humour. But the readers... The readers of Mark's gospel know more. They know that Jesus really is the king because Mark told them in chapter 1, verse 1. The only reason that the soldiers were happy to acknowledge that he's the king of Israel is because he is such a joke. Yet at the same time, they spoke 
and acted more than they knew. For he was the king of the Jews, that is, the Christ. And so in Mark 15, we, we witness something of a coronation. They think that they are mocking him with this joke coronation. But there's a very real sense that in crucifying him, they were actually making him king. Dramatic irony is quite a powerful device. I mean, it's used widely in literature for entertainment purposes. But here, it makes the point that whilst the soldiers are mocking Jesus, God is mocking them. The soldiers think they're poking fun at Jesus in this mock coronation. But Mark's use of dramatic irony turns the tables on them, for they're the ones been poked fun at. They mock Jesus, but the God-inspired Mark mocks them. Now, people may well choose to mock God, but if you can put it this way, God has the last laugh. In Esther 5, there are various instances of dramatic irony. Perhaps the most obvious one is that Haman thinks he has the favour of the queen. I mean, he's invited to a feast, not once, but twice. He's very excited about it. It's the thing that he speaks to his friends about. He adds it to his portfolio of achievements. Haman thinks he has the favour of Esther, but he doesn't know that Mordecai and Esther are related. The reader knows that Esther and Mordecai are related. The reader knows that Esther is opposed to Haman and his plan to destroy the Jews and is planning to appeal to the king in this. Haman doesn't know, but the reader does. And this superior knowledge that the reader has mocks Haman's arrogance and pride. Because precisely the thing that he thinks contributes to his great standing among his peers is in fact a falsehood. Furthermore, Haman is still angry at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. And it still bothers him. And with the instruction of his wife, he makes gallows to kill him. <clears throat> and it's not simply to kill him, but to publicly humiliate him. I mean, his body is to be displayed on a gibbet 80 feet high. Yeah, that's visible over Susa, chapter 5, verse 14. And with Mordecai dead, he'd be able to go to the king to the banquet full of joy. <clears throat> now, I have to be careful here because I don't want to give too much away if this is your first read through Esther, so you can enjoy the ride. But one of the ways dramatic irony works is that it works on the readers being familiar with the story. Esther wasn't meant to be read only once. And so let me put it to you as a conjecture. Could it be 
that these gallows, Haman intends to humiliate and kill Mordecai, may well end up being used to humiliate and kill somebody else. I mean, it would be particularly humiliating, wouldn't it, to find that in your attempt to humiliate somebody else, you yourself are humiliated. The effect of this way of telling the story is to mock human pride and arrogance. And it's, it's symptomatic of the relationship between God, the creator, and creatures. It's a silly thing to think that creatures can plan their own course and purposes and that that, that will be the way that the events unfold, particularly if they're in opposition to God and his plan. Well, let's consider for a moment about the way that Esther is behaving in all of this. For Esther's approach isn't to mock their arrogance. Notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't say to the king, Oh, king, what are you doing? Don't you know that kingdoms come and kingdoms go? My God is the creator, and you're a creature, and if you set yourself against him and his people, the Jews, you will not prevail. She doesn't say that. Probably because it would be a sure way to get herself killed. Now, we do have reason to believe that she is confident in God and bold in being willing to approach the king, even though she may well perish. But she executes her boldness, not clumsily, but with a certain shrewdness. I don't know what you thought about these banquets that she was holding. It could come across a bit as if she's just using delaying tactics. So she goes to the king. The king says, what is your request? And then rather make her appeal, she sort of... uh, let me do a banquet. And then she's buying time. And then when the king asks her a second time, she's uh, 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 a banquet. You know, she's just avoiding asking him. But a careful read of what she says reveals that there's a bit more going on. And actually, there's something of a progression. The first time the king asked her for her request, she offered to hold the banquet and the king and Haman come. At this first banquet, the king then asked again, what is your request? And listen again to Esther's reply. Let's read again from chapter 5, verse 7. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, If I found favour in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She begins as if she's about to express her actual request. My wish and my request is... But then she breaks off and begins again, further arousing the king's curiosity. And this time, it's not simply another invitation to a banquet. 
Rather, she says to the king, in effect, if you would grant me my request, then come to the banquet that I will hold tomorrow. I mean, it's genius. She's basically saying that before he's even heard the request, in coming to the second banquet, he has agreed on principle to grant the request. Do you see? In other words, she's preparing for him to give her what she asked for. This is very shrewd. By the end of her speech, Esther has been able to represent what she wants as a matter of doing what the king has said, verse 8. This is not Esther stumbling in the dark, inviting the king to two unneeded banquets, but shrewd and subtly following a plan which he has manoeuvred the king into committing himself in advance. Esther does share the boldness of God, but she executes it shrewdly. Before we uh, conclude, <clears throat> there's a, a final subtle irony for us to observe. And it relates back to what the king had decreed earlier in Esther chapter 1. So let's remind ourselves. Having been humiliated by his previous queen, Queen Vashti, in not coming to him when called, the king had issued this decree. So let's uh, pick it up from chapter 1, verse 19. So chapter 1, verse 19. If it, pleases, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when a decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukum proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces and to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Yet look at who is master in Esther 5. The king thinks that Esther is doing what the king has said. Yet actually the king is doing what Esther has said. Haman is at a loss to do with what uh, is a loss at what to do with Mordecai, and it's left to his wife Zeresh, who dictates the course of action. It's a decision that further undermines the law made in Esther chapter one. The irony is subtle, but the male dominance which the king enacted into law in Esther one, well, that's now a far cry from the actions of both the king himself and Haman. And it's in the way that the account is told that the hubris of these two men is further humiliated. Well, let me conclude with a couple of observations. First, <clears throat> first Esther 5 sets the scene for what will go on. 
It can't be understood on its own without the rest of the context of Esther and the rest of the Bible. And this reinforces the idea that the Bible itself dictates how it is to be read. It cannot, cannot be read piecemeal. You can't do a one-off talk from Esther chapter 5. So if you've missed Esther, do listen back. You are on catch-up, either on the website or on Spotify, and come back next week for Esther chapter 6. Secondly, despite God's absence by name from the book of Esther, it's not just a record of this period of ancient history. Rather, the author tells it in such a way to show us that it's part of this greater narrative, God's storyline of the whole Bible. It's interesting that when you read uh, biographies, they're, they're invariably told from the perspective of that person. This is how that person's uh, plans and life unfolds. This is their line through history. But notice that the book of Esther isn't told this way. The story is told neither simply from the perspective of the king or from the perspective of Haman. You, know, you get glimpses of their perspective, but their plans are set in the wider storyline of God that actually makes a mockery of their plans, their arrogance and pretensions. And it's told in that way, and the reader can see that. Now, it's not like the book of Revelation, for example, where we're given a, um, a God's-eye view of the world that's made explicit. I mean, the whole thing with narrative is that you only have the content of the narrative to work with, you know, unless you start making narrator comments. But you can still tell the narrative in such a way that is not simply describing what happened, but relating it in such a way as to bring out its meaning, exposing the pretensions of God's enemies and the shrewdness of those who act in line with God's will. Well, let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the skill in which the author of Esther tells this account. And we thank you that it helps the reader to see these events in their wider storyline of your purpose for the world. We thank you in particular for how it exposes the foolishness of opposing you and making, seeking to make plans independent of you, but also helps us to consider uh, what it looks like to act in line with your plan, not simply with clumsy boldness, but with shrewdness. Uh, please help us to reflect on these things and that we uh, might uh, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I mentioned at the start there have been opportunity for any questions or comments.
And if you do ask me what happens to the gallows, my lips are sealed. Yes. Okay, thank you, <clears throat> Rosie. So the question is, do you think uh, Esther's shrewdness is linked with the fact that the people are praying and fasting for her? Yeah, let's, um, let me just turn to... Yeah, well, it's an interesting... Like, um, one of the things we looked at in Chapter 4 with Esther as... The, her development in her own thinking because by chapter 4 Esther is the queen um, and she's a Jew although nobody knows that or you know, the king doesn't know that and we're kind of thinking is she there for a reason but then there's this edict about the fact that all the Jews are to be destroyed and Mordecai also a Jew discerns that actually in God's providence the queen is there or could the queen be there for a reason to be the means of deliverance but interesting that when Mordecai first approaches her to make the appeal she says uh, no um, uh, uh, you know, I, I will perish I don't think I'm particularly in favour with the queen if I go in unless he holds out his scepter then um, I'm going to get killed. So initially, she she's not willing. But then you get these, this wonderful wisdom from Mordecai where he then talks her through in verses... Um, it's, to be fair, it is worth reading again. Have a look at uh, Esther 4. Um, so 4.12. And, then, uh, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said, effectively no. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So basically, three brief points. Basically saying, if you keep silent, you're not safe because you'll perish anyway. So actually risk averse is not a strategy basically do the right thing second point is the fact that he's um, Mordecai is confident that God will deliver his Jews presumably based on the promises and so if it's not the queen it's going to be some other means so basically she can be confident that one way or another deliverance will come and then he discerns um, in verse 14 could this be providential that you are queen for this purpose and the means now Esther takes that on board and then she does decide to appeal to the queen even though she says if I perish I perish so there's, there's a boldness there but still a she's prepared that it may well be another means of deliverance um, but then she calls on people to fast so calling on um, again interestingly no mention of God but implicitly that there is a a fasting in terms of taking seriously um, her proposed appeal and reading between the lines that this is um, uh, 
coming before God in prayer. Um, and then she... So I think that... Sorry, it's a bit long, but I think that does reveal that she's, she's thinking. Um, it's not simply they pray and she's just like... She's, she's zapped. But there is like... She's taking on board what Mordecai... She's thinking about these things from a uh, God's perspective and she's acting accordingly, both in um, how she's thinking and then what she's saying. So I take it, yeah, she's thought actually very carefully, how am I going to make this appeal to the king? What's the best way I can do that in order for the appeal to be successful? And so I think it's all linked together. Cool. Anybody else? Mm, interesting. <clears throat> so, <coughs> uh, I won't say too much, but basically, obviously, um, so the question is, why a banquet for the king and for Haman? So I think it's related to the fact that Haman is the one who made the edict that all the Jews would be destroyed. So the appeal is going to have some repercussions for Haman. The other thing is that uh, earlier in, the, in Esther, the king has made, um, in his decision-making, he's characteristically made consulted with all his people as to what should go on. And I think here Esther's discerning that actually if a decision is to be made, it would be better to be made there and then. So she's preparing the king to make a decision, a rapid decision to her appeal, but also the implications to Haman would also not be contested. And so... I think if Haman's not there, then obviously there's things that he can be doing to kind of manoeuvre himself. So I think in many ways he's the king is the decision maker. Haman is um, the enemy. And so therefore, if they're present when the appeal is made, that's going to... She sees, again, a shrewdness and a strategicness in that. So I think that's what's going on. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, Haman is... I mean, Haman's up there with the, the king. So um, Esther chapter 3, he is the king's you know, top bloke, as it were. So in that sense, it kind of makes sense that he's, he's there. It's not like the king, he says, oh, the king and Haman, and the king's going, Haman, who's Haman? Why is he coming? You know, it's, it's a natural, he's a natural guest. Um, it also serves the purpose of exposing his, pride and arrogance, because he's just, I mean, he says, isn't he, in chapter 5, I mean, it's a wonderful line, 
um, in verse 12. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast she prepared. And the readers all thinking, oh, we know why. <laughs> but he sees that as just adding to his, his, um, his, um, his pride. And so again, the reader's helping us, so the author's helping us to think, okay, this is, uh, we're not, we're learning not to value the things that Haman values because you're seeing the futility and the foolishness of it. Time for more? You'd like? Go on, Susie. Yes. Yes, it is a bit confusing. So I think it is that, that she's got this appeal, which we haven't heard yet, but we know it's going to relate to the Jews, um, somehow the deliverance of the Jews. So these, like, preparatory requests are come to this banquet, come to this banquet. But I think you're right that I think her moment of greatest shrewdness is in verse 8, where she says, if I found favour... So I think when she says, my wish and my request is, I think at that point, that is, this is my appeal, and then the idea is that she breaks off. So she starts by thinking, like, I'm going to say what it is. Oh! But she says, hang on. If I found favour in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish, which I've not yet told you, and fulfil my request, which I've not yet told you, then come to this feast that I will prepare for you. And then, when you come, I will tell you what you said, which is, what's your request? So, but I think that the, the thing that she's doing there is that basically she's saying, if you, basically, in coming to the feast, the king has, on principle, agreed to grant the request, because she's saying, if you're going to grant my request, then come to this feast. So he's come to the feast already granting the request. I mean, you see the character of the king, because he's whimsical, you know, this is, he's not doing anything he doesn't want to do. This is just, she knows the king, and therefore she's, she's operating in that, in those waters. Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. Great. Right, well, come back next week, and if you're, if you're a guest, you'll have to listen in <laughs> on Spotify, or you can just read it through yourself. We're going to sing a final song, um, All Praise to Him.